Hi, you are listening to Africana Woman with Chulu. The Africana Woman is a live show that highlights our stories in our own words. We believe that to attract the lives that we truly desire, we must smash the culture of silence around the things that hold us back or keep us stuck. In our tribe, rest assured, you are not alone. The Africana Woman is for you, it's by you and about you, no matter where you are in the world. So the Africana woman highlighted this week is Annie Mbako, who is Cameroonian born, but a UK citizen. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Annie. So Annie specializes in diversity, equity and inclusion with a particular interest in technology. She has a passion for embedding real diversity in organizations, fueled by a background in multicultural communities across two continents. Her current mission is to work with businesses to embed long-term and inclusive processes and operating models. Annie's accolades include the... Times Top 100 Rising Star by We Are The City and the Northern Power Woman Future List. Most recently, she was named among Tech Nation's 50 Most Inspiring, Prominent and Influential Black Voices in UK Tech 2019. I cannot wait. Annie is actually such a dear, dear friend. And we have known each other for ooh, close to 20 years. So we can definitely talk, y'all. <laughs> but um, our topic today is Brit-ish, ish in brackets. So Brit-ish Africans, newcomers to the game. Listen, this conversation was so good. We had to make it into two parts. So please enjoy the first part of our discussion. Let's get started. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hey. How are Hello. you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. This week has been challenging, but I'm I'm good. So, Annie, you are in the UK, hence the topic British Africans. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us how you find yourself in Britain. So um, I came here because of my parents, specifically my dad. He was studying over here. Um, my mom uh, was with me and my my brothers in Cameroon. That's where we're from. And they just wanted to join the family together, probably, you know, try and give us a better life, look for more education opportunities, more opportunities in general. Um, so we ended up moving to North Wales in 1994. And that's where my parents have been since really um, my dad was lucky enough to get a job um, and my mom found work soon after then and yeah so I've spent a good chunk of um, yeah, most of my teenage years and a good chunk of my youth in in North Wales and um, yeah and I'm, I'm now in Manchester and that's you know the bulk of bulk of my my upbringing my everyday but I still um, consider myself very much Cameroonian um, it was Cameroon at home and Wales or England outside the house um, mm. yeah so that's how I arrived in the UK so I've been here for a very long time and seeing things also being stationed in Wales 
It's very different from being in England, which a lot of people don't know. The UK is made up of several different countries and England is slightly different than Scotland. And that's slightly different from Northern Ireland. And that's very different also from Wales. We have different rules, different ways of doing things. The um, mixture in the population is very different as well. And the education system as well is different. So, yeah, all of my, my opinions, I would say, um, are not typical because most black people who come to the UK even today, they don't end up in Wales. So um, I have a, yeah, a very nuanced view. <laughs> Mumma saying, say something in a Mancunian accent. Well, apparently when I speak, I have a Mancunian twang already. It's not quite okay. often. <laughs> I can't really. Oh, hi, Natalie Claire. <laughs> this is, um, yeah. Oh, cool. So, okay. So I think there's been different types of... Um, <clears throat> Africans who are in the UK, I would think. There are mm -hmm. um, Africans who went to the UK like yourself as um, young children. And then there's mm -hmm. also those that um, were went in an, a later stage in life, um, probably let's say to study or to find a job. And then there is the first generation Africans as well. And I imagine the experiences are, are quite diverse. Yes, um, indeed. Yeah. So just take us a little bit back into how Africans found themselves on the British Isles. Yeah. So as everyone or most people are aware, a lot of all the English speaking African countries, well, a lot of us are part of the Commonwealth. So um, I would say that the years and years and years ago, it wasn't actually that difficult to get to the UK. So I think from what I've seen, the people that took advantage really were um, Nigerians, Ghanaians, um, South Africans, Zimbabweans. A lot of these places, you didn't even need a visa to come to mm. the UK because you were considered pretty much British. Um, th that's how the first, first black population came and settled here from the Caribbean. But with the with the Africans, um, it was a, a similar story. What I've seen, and I was quite surprised when I came to the UK because I assumed that we Africans had as deep roots um, in in the UK, just as Caribbeans did, maybe not in as many numbers, but a mm. lot of us who have come here had children say from in the 70s and 80s, a lot of people came here, had children just to get the passport and we actually sent our children back home to do um, schooling. Um, and I know I know why that is. We always think that our school system in Africa is superior in some ways. And mm -hmm. it is, to be fair. Uh, having been somewhat experiencing both, um, both uh, systems of education, our education is superior. So I know a lot of Ghanaians and Nigerians who they were born here. I didn't even know they were born here. They have the passports and all the privilege that comes with the passport. But they only jumped in either at um, just before they were about to turn 18. So they did A-levels here um, or they came, came back when they were younger. Um, so the population or African population in general in the UK tends to be 
very well educated. We didn't really um, come over on on specific uh, vocational uh, vocational visas, should we say, or for vocational reasons. Um, and we seem to be, in general, well, from what we're hearing from researchers, um, the most educated side of, of the Black community. But the longer that people have been here, we have seen, you know, differences. So people like myself who came when I was a child or someone who comes here when they're an adult or almost an adult, they've still got mm -hmm. a very, very strong affiliation with their home country. Um, sometimes people like myself, I don't even consider myself British. Yes, I have a passport and yes, I have the accent and my life is here, but I, I've considered myself Cameroonian first always. And that's how I will always be. And, you know, we were brought here because the passport, quite frankly, it's it's a privilege and it's an advantage to have that passport. Um, and I wouldn't want to have it any other way. But in my heart, I feel Cameroonian first. Um, and I'm still I'm still honestly say I'm still even in my 30s, still trying to understand what being British is, because I know what it is to be adopted Welsh. But I didn't know or didn't realise that England was so different until I started living here as well. And it was just a revelation. Um, to Tell us some of the people. things that are different. What's different? Um, so the population in terms of uh, the black population in Wales, we mm -hmm. tend to be a lot more mixed as in intermarriage. There were a lot more mixed race children um, mm -hmm. from first and second generation. Uh, obviously, there are fewer of us as well. So we tend to be comfortable or confident in swimming around in circles where we will be only black people. And um, I know that that's, it's different from England because England's a bigger country. And let's face it, most of the economics for the UK happens in England. Um, mm -hmm. So we really have, well, maybe with the exception of Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales, we don't really have clusters where there are large communities of Africans. That's not really happened yet. It is starting to happen in the larger cities, um, but there wasn't ever that kind of thing. So it was always, that's why I said in the beginning, it was Wales when we left the house and Cameroon when we were inside the house. And for mm. most people, whether they were fully black or not, that's exactly how how life was. There wasn't any, for example, we live um, near the border of England, so we're very lucky. Manchester is only 45 minutes drive away from Wrexham, and we would always come to Manchester to buy African food, um, to cut our hair, to do our hair. We had mm -hmm. to leave Wales in order to do that. Um, luckily these days, I know that in Wrexham and in Cardiff and Swansea, big cities in Wales, um, those, you know, whether it's the food or whether it's something cultural that you need, those um, activities are there. So you don't have to travel to England to do them anymore um, or to do as many of them. But um, I would say also the um, open racism in in England and Wales, as far as I've experienced it, there's a lot more open racism in England or there used to be. Um, mm -hmm. and Sure that it, it was exactly Wales exactly more accepting but because there weren't clusters until recently there haven't been clusters of large communities mm -hmm. of black people 
Um, I don't know, maybe Welsh people didn't really feel threatened and the conversation about race would have started on a different footing because they, you know, they knew and even th these days they know that they are the majority and it's still their country. There was never any chance of having, you know, a street or a corner that was African or, uh, well, I mean, Chinese always have their Chinatown and that's always acceptable. But yeah, there was really never any threat. But also in the way that, um, the systems are run like for example with healthcare in Wales we don't you don't pay for basic medicines then in England you do um so you've got to be quite wealthy if you're going to be sick as you know as much as there is the NHS there that costs a lot of money um yeah we don't have that thing in Wales and in Wales as well I remember before the expensive university fees came on I could actually um apply for funding to pay for my university you couldn't you can't do that in England um, unless you prove that your parents can't pay but in Wales it was possible to do and I know in Scotland as well it's possible to do so there are subtle differences and it's because of the way that the government is uh, run in Wales because the country's smaller and they generally have a mindset of looking after their own people I think a lot more mm -hmm. than England and I think that might be one of the reasons why my parents never moved from Wales. Okay. Yeah. So I have a question for you from Muma. She says, how do you say this experience shaped your view of yourself? So I would say from moving from Cameroon and then mm -hmm. coming to um, yeah, Wales and eventually now living in, um, in Manchester. Yeah. So when, when we first came over, I mean, I was so excited. So let me explain. I think most people who are on the call will know, but the feeling of when you leave from most places in Africa to come to somewhere like the UK, you are so excited because it's pictured, it's painted as the pinnacle of the world, the best thing that can ever happen to you. And, you know, even I remember my first day of school, just the massive difference between coming from a classroom where our classrooms in Cameroon were just made of concrete walls, brown walls, and the chalkboard, and that was it. And then we had wooden benches. And then you come to a class where you're sitting in a round table. You don't all, you're not all facing the teacher. There are four of you on a table. There are pictures and paintings on the wall. The wall is colorful. You've got plants, you've got computers, all sorts of things. And yeah, it was it, it was absolutely amazing. So for the first few years, I would say certainly um, adjusting in to primary school, also because of the experience that we had, uh, the care that the teachers and the church um, took for us, because we went to a Catholic school and it was attached to a Catholic church. Um, they actually did a great job of trying to integrate us, um, trying to welcome us and give us a tour before we actually started school. Um, I remember I was quite nervous leaving um, my brother, who's the closest in age to me, um, leaving him because the, the school buildings, our school buildings, when we went, they were um, not in the same building. They were across the playground. So I was physically not in the same building as him for the first year maybe the first and second year that I was there as well. Um, so that was nerve wracking. But um, I think the school did an amazing job or as much as they could in taking care of us. And I, I it's not to say that I didn't feel out of place. I definitely did because we were the only black children in the school. Uh, there were two other Indian girls there. And I think that pretty much was it in terms of diversity. Everyone else was white. 
um, we did feel it, but because everyone had tried to make us feel so welcome, um, yeah, we we blended in. We tried to, you know, they made us feel as Welsh as possible while still honouring our African heritage. Did you ever feel like you had to change yourself, you know, like um, feel the pressure to look like everybody else and do what other people are doing? Um, I don't know when you have your um, your break, maybe your food was different from the other kids. I don't know. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of food, um, I don't know if we were uh, my parents purposefully did this, but we didn't. You had a choice of whether to bring in lunch or to eat lunch made for you in in school. And I remember for a very long time we had to eat the lunch that was there. Um, so my parents are the kind of people that will try and get you used to different. Even in Cameroon, we were used to different types of food, different types of people. And so maybe that was done on purpose, or maybe they couldn't be bothered. To, to do packed lunches but certainly in terms of you know what I wore my hair eventually yes over the years I felt pressure that particularly became apparent especially in high school where there's already pressure anyway peer pressure to look a certain way and I remember that caused uh, quite a few problems with my parents because um, as African parents, they weren't really um, au fait with the program uh, of how, you know, white British um, young children behave, the way that they dress, the way that they talk, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that was a bit of hell for me because um, I had to definitely do one thing in school and at home, I, I just had to tone it down because I remember, you know, my mum my particularly, she did not hold back in terms of telling me, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, it's not happening, not in my house. Um, yeah, those are the kind of words that she used, but I, I think that's typical of most African parents when they come over. Um, they didn't want, you know, their daughter straying away from doing well in, in school and things, anything that is seen as a, um, a trend sometimes at home can be seen as a threat to, you know, the stability of your grades and how you're perceived. And I think as well, now that I think back at it, my parents did experience some slight racism and microaggressions at work. They always did. They never told us about it. But I think part of their fear in letting us roam around, you know, in a town where most of the time we were pretty much the only black people that we ever saw most of the time that yeah. I was there. Um yeah, they were trying to just cocoon us from the, the pain that they had experienced at work. Um, but I didn't know that. All I thought was, you know, my parents are trying to restrict me. Um, yeah, and that resulted in me, luckily, with some of my friends and my mom's friends. They would vouch for me and we would, you know, go to places that other teenagers would go. But there was no way that I was ever going to go there if I told my parents the truth. Um, and not it's not to say that I did anything particularly bad um I was a goody two-shoes apparently <laughs> now that I look back on it but um yeah even just simple things like sleeping over at someone's house oh gosh like that was an ordeal that took a lot of negotiation even having dinner at someone's house after school um I know it's a big problem still with a lot of, of African parents who've just moved to the UK because it's not really something that we we do and they're quite wary of things either habits that we will pick up or how we'll be treated in other people's mm. housing so 
yeah, it's, it's, it's awkward when you're a teenager and you're trying to be, I didn't even want to be cool. I just wanted to fit in and that's how you make friends. You do sleepovers, you go over to their house, they come over to yours. And it took my parents quite some time to, to really understand how it all works and that it was normal and it's okay. But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, their first reactions to it were always, this is my house. These are my rules. We don't do things like this in Africa. You don't see any of your cousins doing this. So, you know, it's not acceptable. No, bye. Mm-hmm. There was no negotiation, no discussion. Well, Natalie, Natalie has commented. She says, you become a pro negotiator with the sleepover plan. <laughs> Weeks in advance, strategy begins. I like that. <laughs> hey, sis. Thank you for listening to Africana Woman with Chulu. This show is only possible because of your participation. These are your stories in your own words. There are actually two ways that you can be featured in the Africana Woman Network. You can either be a guest blogger on the Africana Woman blog or a guest speaker on the Africana Woman podcast. If any of these interest you, please contact me on africanawoman at gmail.com to learn more about the procedures to be approved. Now, back to the show. Yeah. So on the same tone, um, mm. in terms like you, you've got this. You said this concept of um, you know you're you're British on on outside of the house, but then you're African on the inside of the house. Now, how long do you think that um, that stays intact in the the next generations coming down? Oh, it, it it doesn't. It cannot. Um, and certainly for me, for my children, it it will not. And not because I don't want it to, but I can see. So my brother, I have a brother who he was, I think he was about two when we came. So he's pretty much a baby. And being, growing up in Wales is all that he's ever known. You can see a stark difference between him and me and my other brother who came here when we were eight, which, by the way, when you're eight in Africa, it means that you can pretty much look after yourself. We could do most domestic chores by ourselves. Um, there's a massive difference. You have a, a looser grip on your original culture. And it doesn't matter how much of the language um your parents try to teach you how many times they take you there on holiday yes you may still feel a close affinity with the African culture but you will feel a stronger affinity with being British and also there's a bigger and stronger black population in the UK now which there wasn't and there's social media and the internet as well which makes you feel closer to the black people here so there's a whole host of different people who are at different stages that you can relate to a mm-hmm. lot more. I mean, I didn't have a mobile phone until mm-hmm. I was 17. And even then I shared it with my brother. So, you know, can you imagine that? And there's a massive difference between that and a 10 year old, because some 10 year olds have iPhones now and they can, you know, speak to their peers or their cousins or whoever. Um, yeah, the, the communication just wasn't there. So I think the experience will be different because there's a stronger um, sense of, what it is to be black and British. Um, mm-hmm. There are different, different versions of it, but at least people are, they're more together right now. So yeah, definitely, um, I definitely don't think that it, it, it definitely, from what I can see anyway, of people as well, who've pretty much been born here, grown up here with African parents. Um, I know that they're definitely different from me um, in varying degrees, but yeah, there's a huge, huge difference. 
Um, Because my parents never let me forget that, you know, we came from Cameroon. And that's why I always say I always present myself in most places, unless there's an advantage to telling people that I'm British or from Manchester or from Wales. I always present myself as Cameroonian first because I'm like, it doesn't matter what you do to me. I've had it ingrained in my brain that that's where I'm from. That's my home. So you can do what you like, but it's, it's home to me. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about British Africans. Mm-hmm. What makes mm-hmm. them ish? Ish. 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 <laughs> some, some, <laughs> with some people, that's more referring to maybe people like me. And I think um, the s- society still, there's a lot of people who still see us as other, that we're not quite British. Mm-hmm. We're not quite there. Um, I think that's contributed um, to my me hanging on to my Cameroonian identity as well um, because there are subtle ways that people have you know made it clear that I'm I'm not British and I'm sure even people who were born here with parents who are from Africa they, they get made to feel that way um, you know in the recent recent civil rights activities that's happened with Black Lives Matter and everything people have researched a conversation about microaggressions and um, a lot of people have been burying burying things but when I'm talking to people and seeing you know what they're seeing and then they go back and they realize actually you know I I felt awkward in this position and it was because I was subtly reminded that I'm not from here yet and it's almost as if you you know, it's it's not even good enough that you are born here for some people, mm-hmm. that you're born here because you've mm-hmm. got African parents, as if you have to like cleanse the Africanness out of yourself and then the next generation. So it worries me that, you know, the next generation, will they be, be good enough to be British? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we're never, never good enough. And that British with brackets around the ish, it's it's the title of a book, actually. Um, a lady called Afua Hirsch and uh, she... She's half um, Ghanaian and um, half, well, it's really German, but British. Um, and yeah, she writes, delves a lot into the history and even her for herself, um, even though she's born here and she's, you know, one of her parents is really British. Um, she, she still feels out of place. So, you know, yeah, it's no wonder there's a lot of people who are kind of feeling out of place. And um, even if they assert themselves, they can show for the last 40 years, their heritage in this country or their lineage of their entire family in this country, they're still made to feel as if they don't belong. Um, yeah, and that's why British at the mm-hmm. end. So what do you think are the coping mechanisms, you know, of um, people that find themselves in that situation where, you're, you know, you've been born in Britain, uh, yes, you've got African parents, uh, but you know, you're being made to feel or um, that you are not from that country. What, how, how do you see people's coping mechanisms? How does it um, come out? So a lot of people, I know that the certain congregation with Black people just to ground yourself and calm yourself, it really helps a lot. Um, it definitely helps me. And I think that that is a it's a, a reason as well why we see the the church or churches in UK that are full of young people, old people all over the place. I think it's 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 a place where we it's can go and sorry, yeah, African 
African people. Like the churches are full of African people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there are, you know, churches that the congregation specifically is targeted toward African people. A lot of people um, gather and, you know, being together with your own people, whichever way that you do it, it does ground you and it reassures you, um, gives you quite a lot of strength as well. And um, yeah, it's it's really, really important. Um, I, in my circles that I, I, I either work with or I socialize with sometimes. I've seen there's been times in my life where I didn't have that many black people or, you know, the black people were really mainly like family and longtime friends. So I wasn't necessarily seeing people every day. But even for myself, I've started going to this walking group recently and it is just for black women. And just the act of being with them for a few hours on a random Sunday and not having to worry about what you say or what your hair looks like or how you do things and even joking in a way that I I used to think oh it's just an African way maybe it's something that's been preserved over time and the group is full of African and Caribbean ladies but the way that we even tell jokes the way that we make fun of each other it's completely different in a way that I wouldn't do it if the group was you know full of a lot of white people I wouldn't um yeah so it I think being together, that's like one of the, the most important things that we, we need to keep doing. Mm-hmm. And even if you, you live in an area where there aren't many, many black people, like my parents did, we always went to London. We went to London every month. Um, they have friends in Manchester. Manchester's also got a big black population. And with other mm-hmm. cities, they always go to events um, and stay in touch with people um, because you just need that kind of grounding that only, you know, your own people can can give you. And that happens you know, to every race that's a minority in in an area, that there is no way, I don't think now, people have not cracked a way of giving you that sense of comfort and, and grounding that your own people can give you. But the other way that people, um, it's not really coping, I don't call it coping, but they, people tend to put things in their back pocket as well. I'm talking about these microaggressions, whether we realize them or not, when things happen and they make us feel uncomfortable, you have to decide at that point uh, whether you're going to fight, whether you're going to speak up or not, because it has a knock on effect on your, you know, your activity, your stability. And it's usually to do with work, um, your the perception that people have of you. And a lot of people I've seen, a lot of people who are successful, they pack a lot of things away and tend to deal with them away, you know, privately in blocks of time. Um, but psychologically, obviously, that is not great because, as we've seen with the this incident with with in happening in America and the stirring up of Black Lives Matter, a lot of people haven't been able to cope psychologically with what's happened because they've got so much in their back pocket. With this one, they but, can't put it in the back pocket because it's too full. Yeah, it's but Annie, do you think? You said that people, they they experience microaggressions, um, mm-hmm. they put it away and then they, they deal with it later. But do you think they're actually dealing with it? Especially coming from a culture mm-hmm. where you know, Africans are like me, psychology, like me, go to a therapist, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it is, it is. And that's the problem because it's not been dealt with 
properly. People, you know, we don't we don't do therapy. Therapy is a new thing, which I would say maybe the under 35s are looking at it, considering it. But in the over 35s, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, you know, I'm not sure if my parents would ever go to therapy, even though they, they both work in medical fields. Um, it's so important. I think what this recent crisis has shown is that that act of packing stuff away in the in the back pocket it doesn't work I've seen people um who I thought were they were my rock and they've told me that they've spent the first two weeks when George Floyd was killed rolling on their floors crying you know that that is not the the mark of someone who's who's dealt with it um yeah so we need to you you've got a great point there this is one of the things of um while our population grows here and when we come here, we need to start picking up some habits that are commonplace in the UK for our own good and going to therapy. It's not even great within the white population, but just going to therapy full stop has got to be a habit. Talking to people about things, it's got to be a habit. We've got to start doing it. We can't just do things the African way, pack it and you know carry on because things are better. We've got it better than everyone else. It's like, no, you will not be able to be the rock for your family or thrive really and truly if you don't deal with those things. That's the reality of it because somehow, somewhere, that bubble's going to burst one day and you need to be in control of when the bubble bursts and how it bursts and, you know, make sure that it doesn't destroy everything that you've worked for. I've seen a lot of people, um, and I don't blame them, but online lately because they let that bubble burst in an uncontrolled manner um, in you know a, a place that isn't safe for them quite frankly um they've kind of ruined their chances for themselves and it, it it's difficult because expressing yourself should never ruin your chances ideally but we're we're human and one thing that we need to remember is that because we're not the majority in this country um someone said something to me we're not the majority in this country we're not in the director's box we are guests at the table Mm. Whether you want, you know, whether you want it to be real or not, that's that's a fact. We are guests in the table. So when we're releasing our emotions, when we're talking to people, when we're addressing things, we do still need to be mindful and mindful of where is a safe space to do it. So there's no repercussions. Or if you're going to have, you know, risk of repercussions, be mm-hmm. ready to, to deal with it. Um, yeah. So I, I feel, I feel for people. It's so difficult. It, it is really, really difficult. And also because I've never been, I'm always usually calm. I don't usually lose my temper very quickly. Um, so that's been the most difficult part for me this, during this period is trying to help people um, find a safe, safe outlet for them and carry on uh, focusing on the positives and doing the best that they can and changing things that they can. Because there's a lot of things that we can't change. Um, yeah. And we well, can cry about them straight away, but we can work to change it. Yes, yes. And there's some people, okay. you know, some people have got resources. They can make mm-hmm. massive changes. They're near the top. But for some people, you know, if you're at the bottom of the chain, you need to be realistic about what you can do and what you can't do, um, and the consequences of what what you really, 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 you know, what can actually okay. happen. So- because you work in the digital space, just give us an example mm-hmm. of what you would recommend not to do in a digital space and what would be a safe space to go and uh, vent or um, let out your your um, frustrations. Yeah. 
So something I've seen, um, particularly on LinkedIn, and it's because of the kind of platform that it's on. So LinkedIn, it, it's generally very professional still, although it's getting more more casual. People are sharing personal things on there. But I have seen quite a few posts where people, um, they're venting, but they're also attacking their their clients and potential um potential uh, customers, um, you know, and saying that, you know, people don't care on the space. Um, I, I don't think that is helpful. And using social media to to vent as well, you've got to be aware of, you know, who's your audience on that platform. You don't want to be, if you're someone that relies on, you know, your your clients or your, your um, I don't know, your peers or whatever, they're mainly white, you're in a mainly white industry, you you've got to be careful. There are ways to to put your frustration across or say how you feel without attacking people that might be on your side or they might be on the fence. And if they see you know things that you post and they feel that it's an attack, there's no way to have a conversation online on LinkedIn. Um, it's very different from posting something on Facebook where it's just all your friends, or maybe on Instagram where it's just your friends and your family, and mm. you know you've got time to really explain things so yeah people have to be just a bit careful in um in where where they post the certain things and how they address it because there's always a way to address something in a level-headed way and I think sometimes it is better just to take five minutes to breathe um and not say anything initially than immediately but um in terms of you know, in, in the digital space, it's always, it's always good to, and it's difficult, but it's always good to address people who actually know you and who you know directly. So um, there have been a lot of conversations that have happened in people's direct messages or private messages, and it leads to a video call. Um, that's always the best way because a lot of people in the UK, especially white people, they weren't aware that there was still racism going on. They didn't understand what racism really was um and in order for them to understand they need a full story and a full picture from you and you can't give that in a post some people are able to give that in a video a long video that they recorded and i've seen that being done really well but those people are skilled at communicating most of us are not like that um so i would definitely recommend if anybody you know you still because there's still a lot of tension going on um, if you can start having conversations with people, direct messages, and try and get them onto a phone call where you can actually have a conversation, it's always the best way. Um, yeah, don't don't do things on social media, and especially don't post something if you're not ready for potential backlash or argument or back and forth. If you're going to get frustrated by mm-hmm. that, uh, don't do it. It's always best to. I've seen a lot of people come off social media completely. Um, which, you know, I'd advise if, if that's what's going to work for your mental health, do it <laughs> and, and get away from, from, from the craziness, but don't get involved into things that you, you know, you can't handle um, because yeah. social media can be, it can be a difficult landscape to navigate anyway, but already with, with this sensitive issue, um, yeah, if you're really not ready for a fight psychologically, don't start one because the, the fact of the matter is if you're black, you're still going to experience racism probably for the rest of our lives. I'm sorry to say. So those people that you're arguing with, if they don't understand what racism is, they don't experience it. 
they just stop at that fight. But the fight that you have, it stays in your head and the anger eats away at you. So you have to be selfish, I say. You have to be selfish and think about yourself and what's best for you um, because you still have to carry on and you still have to pay the bills or go to school or do whatever. Mm. So yeah, to yourself. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I told you it would be good. Didn't I tell you this would be a good conversation with Annie? So these are my three top takeaways. One, it is so important that if you move to another country um, off the continent, please maintain connections as a minority group. And number two, you know, we go there and we have, you know, children, but the next generation down have a looser connection with our countries of origin. And it's very hard to, to maintain it, but, you know, you do what you can. Number three, we are British. That term is because there are still people who treat British Africans as others. Basically, they are still guests at the table. Mm. So guys, like I said, this was just part one of the conversation. There is going to be a part two. So you need to make sure that you join us next week. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning into Africana Woman for another week. It's so amazing that you're here. I really do appreciate your time. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Snitcher, Pandora, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts click the subscribe button. You will be helping us so much if you first subscribed, gave us a five-star five rating, and then reviewed the podcast. We love to know what you thought about the episode or even what do you want to have us talk about in the future. So I also love to connect with you. So find me on all social media at Chulu by Design or come on over to the Africana Woman Tribe, which is a Facebook group, and we can dive deeper into this topic. So see you next week for part two of this conversation. Remember, my hope is that you love yourself, flaws and all, and attract the life that you desire. This has been a production of Ulendo Creative Media. You can find out more about their services on www.ulendocreative.com.